values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Do you have an old AC unit? You could win a brand new high-efficiency AC with an air purifier courtesy of Day and Night Air Conditioning. Text the word DAY, the word DAY, to 411923 to enter. Message and data rates may apply. Um, I want to talk about this speaker's race. We're going to be covering this very closely this morning as the House reconvenes to try to elect a speaker of the House. First time it wasn't done in a first ballot in about 100 years. Kevin McCarthy failed to get it. As a matter of fact, he lost some support as the day went on. What's going to happen? What will happen this morning? Um, Congressman Schweikert was on with Arizona's Morning News and believes that eventually it will end up being uh, McCarthy that will be the speaker. But behind the scenes, uh, this is an issue and it depends on where you stand. I am someone that believes you stand on principle. I absolutely do. Um, but you also have to understand when you go into a body like this that you are one vote. And so what do you do? For, how do you get the best? If you're going to have a minority of people that stand up and say, if we don't get our way, we'll shut the whole thing down. You're not building any kind of coalition. You're building animosity. And are the Republicans missing out on a real opportunity here? Um Although it, it's interesting, um, I have never agreed ever with the decisions of Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House. I didn't like the policies. I didn't like some of the practices. But it's hard to argue, and there have been many Republicans behind the scenes that have said Republicans need a leader like that. Republicans need a leader that behind the scenes is able to rally the caucus. That is able to get the caucus to come together. And it just seems sometimes trying to rally the Republicans is like herding cats. You know, one way or the other, it seems like that there are so many people that are just going to stand their ground with no compromise and they don't care what the repercussions are. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm making an observation. Nancy Pelosi, if you go back to her first time as Speaker of the House when Harry Reid was running the Senate, uh, President Obama was in office and they were promoting Obamacare. If you remember, there were no Republicans in the House that supported it whatsoever, and they were having a difficult time getting many Democrats to sign on to Obamacare. And uh, Nancy Pelosi worked feverishly behind the scenes um, to get the caucus, the Democrats, all of the Democrats on board, and she eventually did, and then they passed it in the Senate, same thing, and we got Obamacare. Now, I didn't agree with it. I'm not saying I, I don't I didn't like any of it. I thought it was the wrong way to do things, the wrong thing to do. I don't like Obamacare. I think there's a better way of handling things because I have political differences. But this isn't about political differences. This is about when you are put in a leadership position, how are you able to rally the team? Now, her tactics are different. She's a huge fundraiser. But when you look at what she did, she accomplished her party's goals in her time in office more often than not. And she could do it many times without any Republican support. But there are, you know, it, it, there is a, a, a big spectrum of leadership and representation in the House of Representatives. You're not either hard right or hard left. There are many places in states. Well, here in Arizona, when um, Gabrielle Giffords, uh, Congresswoman Giffords, was down in southern Arizona, she was a Democrat. But she also was a very, at the time, very pro-Second Amendment and seemed, uh, by some, seen as a very moderate Democrat in some ways. That, that there's moderate. Republicans, when you're in districts, especially in the House, when you're in districts that are that way, you have to be more moderate because that's the district you're representing. So you aren't just hardline right or hardline left. And Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, was able to rally the troops on her side of the caucus and get the things done that were important to her and at the time important to the president. 
And that, I think, is what Republicans are missing more than anything else. Now, whether it's McCarthy or whoever, Jim Jordan, who says he doesn't want to be speaker or Andy Biggs or any of those other people, um, what's the goal? Is the goal winning the office or is the goal someone that's going to be able to get all of those things done? And I think that's where things get lost. The ideologues who look at say this is this is what we want. And then they say, well, you're not going to get all that. There's no way you're getting all of that. Well, then we'll take our toys and we'll go home. It's not the way you work when you have to work with people. It's not a dictatorship. That's the thing that gets me is it's not a dictatorship. And the Democrats, you look at the squad and how what outliers they are, even in their own party sometimes with the anti-Semitic things they've said and some of the other things that's gone on. Even they come into the fold when it's necessary to make sure the Democrats get what's best for Democrats. Nobody gets everything they want. This all or nothing attitude, we are either going to get what we want or we will shut the whole thing down is just an approach that sounds great in a campaign slogan or in a campaign speech. But in practicality, in practice, it's not. It isn't. Um, I want to hear a couple of comments. This is, uh, rep- this is Representative McCarthy talking about the fact that he isn't backing down. People have a lot of concerns. It's a little growth period that we have. But at the end of the day, all this that we go through will make us stronger in the long run. So this is him talking about what he needs to achieve, how many votes he needs, or what he needs to achieve here. I don't really see the battle. I just, we're not that far away. We only need, we only need 11 more votes to win. So I think from a whole perspective, you talk to everybody, it's not that far away. You know, it's interesting that when you have a when you have a plan, you have a goal and you have a plan, people will follow. Uh, You know, if you look around the NFL and I'm not I'm not saying this to be derogatory toward anyone, but you look at a guy like a Cliff Kingsbury in Arizona where the questions are, has he lost the locker room? He was pretty friendly with the players. He was a more known more of a player guy. And you look at a guy like a Bill Belichick, whose career has been historic in the NFL. He was grumpy to everybody and including the superstars on his team to the media and everybody else. But when you have a plan and it works and you win, people will follow you. What I mean is it shouldn't be a popularity contest. It certainly isn't in the NFL. It isn't a popularity contest in the House of Representatives, and it shouldn't be. These are not, um, you know, these are not the class president student council elections. It's the government of the most powerful nation in the world. And why are we, you know, we should be looking at people that are going to get things done, that are going to accomplish a goal. Now, for the people on the opposite side of the aisle from leadership that's in power right now, it's not about, it's, I understand you're not going to like it anyway. But for the people that have been elected to power by the majority, you've got to look at what is, what, how do you get, who is going to get things done? And I'm anxious to see if they actually do that. All right. How much money does it take to be considered middle class? It's a great question. It's been answered in at least one column. The numbers are going to surprise you. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate you spending some time with the show. Here's how much money it takes to be considered middle class in America. I apologize for the voice. I uh, brought my souvenir home from Florida. It was a cold, so I'm uh, getting over it. Didn't want to miss any more time, so I apologize in advance for the Peter Brady moment you're hearing during the show. Um, 
The middle class has been shrinking throughout the last five decades as more Americans have entered either the upper or lower income brackets. Um, Pew Research Center defined middle class as those earning between two-thirds and twice as the median American household income, which in 2021 was 70784 That means the American households earning as little as 47189 and up to 141000 are technically in the middle class. The reason why I mention that is because there's a list. I went to the website Zero Hedge, and they have got a list of how much prices have gone up over the last year. The reason why this is important is because how a downward spiral in an economy works. It's very interesting to me to see um, the directions we take based on ideology. And so I think my idea, at least I hope, my ideology has been formed by what I see that works and what doesn't work, not just for me, but in general. And you want to do more of what works. You want to do less of what doesn't work. You mimic other people. Uh, Again, I I use sports analogies a lot. So here we are, the NFL, if you look at that organization and how that league is gone, um, they copy each other. You know, uh, when you get a defense like the 46 zone that was run um, uh, by Buddy Ryan in, in the 85 Bears and that great defense, you have other defensive coaches that emulate it. And you have offensive coaches that figure out a way to defeat it. But when it's the new thing that really works and then you take pieces of those things and you use them throughout your career. Myself, as a, as a learning coach when I was younger, you take those things from people as they show you drills and things that make a team work and it's efficient when you're whatever you're doing in practice whether you're a position coach or a coordinator or a head coach, and you use those things in practice to make your practices efficient. You don't take somebody else's stuff 100%. You take a bunch of different things from people, and you find something that works for you. And I think that's in all aspects of life. As an electrician, when I came from that industry, I learned from some great people, whether it was in the field and how to actually do the job itself, or when I became an estimator and a project manager, When I went into management and eventually owning my own business, you take things from people that you find valuable that work for you and you build your own system and hopefully you become successful. That's what success is. When I look at the United States economy and you look at some of the things we're hearing about inflation and the housing market dip and the jobs and what's going to happen next year with what they're predicting as far as having a recession goes. And then you look at Arizona and what we've done. It's not luck. It's never luck. Now, there are those that get lucky. You hit the lottery or you're born into a wealthy family. So when it comes to that, yes, that that plays a role. But, you know, the vast majority of people that earn huge money are, A, uniquely successful or uniquely good at something. And when you're the best at something, I don't care what it is, usually, usually wealth follows. But there are policies also in place that help foster growth and foster entrepreneurship, that foster wealth. And those are the things we should be following. We've got tax increases that are coming down the, down the road in this year that they are now being implemented at a time when the American economy cannot really take having more of its discretionary income taken away. And what's funny about these tax increases, most of which they say are especially going to hammer the rich, which a segment of our society is OK with, which I don't understand. But at a time when the federal government is getting record revenue into the Treasury, 
If you remember the White House going after the oil companies and saying this obscene profit taking that they're having, that they are, um, you know, that they are profiteering, that they are price gouging. Um, you have Senator Fetterman uh, saying, uh, Senator elected, even before he was elected, that if elected to office, he'd want to drag the food growers and drag the oil producers into court and take put them in prison for price gouging. And the the thought process behind that is they're making obscene profits, and for the good of the country, they could cut prices and cut their profits a little bit. The federal government has been setting records. Look me up if you think I'm wrong. Check it out yourself. The federal government has been setting records for revenue every month, every quarter, including last year, record revenue into the United States Treasury. That would be profit, correct? That would be tax collection, setting records. So why aren't they cutting taxes and giving the American people more of their own money back? They're doing the opposite. They're playing class warfare, and they're hammering the rich, as they say, that and acting as if it's not going to affect the people at the lower end of the economic spectrum. At a time when they're telling private business, lower your prices so the American people, you're not taking money out of their pockets. And yet you're taking out of the pockets of Americans when you've got record revenue into the Treasury. Again, that's just policy I look at and what works and what doesn't work. You call it Republican, Democrat. It definitely is in many ways. But what works and what doesn't? Here in the state of Arizona, we lowered taxes for everybody, including the rich. And look where we sit. Look where we are with the huge expanse of business and opportunity in Arizona. If it works, why aren't you looking at seeing if it works? Now, if you're saying it doesn't work for everyone, there's not a plan out there that works for everyone. What gives everybody the best opportunity at success? Opportunity, not outcome. And so I'm, we're going to talk more about this as the day goes on. But, you know, the increases in prices, now tax increases to businesses, this is not going to be good for some people. It's going to be bad for many. And it's something we have to keep our eye on. All right. Why did Governor Hobbs not call a special session on abortion? The explanation from her office and what this is all about coming up here in just a couple of moments. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate you spending some time with me on the show this morning. Uh, again, I apologize for the voice. Brought a cold with me from Florida. I was on vacation for two weeks and uh, didn't want to miss another day. So I apologize in advance for what you're hearing in this voice. But uh, it is what it is. Um, Doctors cannot be prosecuted for abortion uh, under the 1864 law an Arizona court has ruled. And so Governor Hobbs has canceled plan to call a special session because of this. Uh, the issue on the abortion topic is a sensitive one, and I try to be as sensitive as I can to it. I have said and maintained um, for forever that I am unapologetically pro-life. And uh, this conversation has always been about when life begins. At the end of the day, people can say my body, my choice, all that they want to. And I mean this respectfully. I'm not trying to start a, a war. But if you believe that there should be limits on when a woman can decide to have an abortion in a pregnancy, meaning that once it gets to a certain place in the pregnancy, yeah, you acknowledge that it's a human life, that it should be protected and there should be some limitations, then it isn't your body, your choice. Because truly, in honesty, if it's a my body, my choice situation, it is your body, your choice up until the moment of childbirth. 
Now, on the other side of that, the pro-life conversation about what about when it's in when the mother's life is at risk, when a woman is beyond that, whatever the limitation is in your state and her life is at risk with something that happens in a pregnancy. Those are the conversations that have to be wrestled with. And instead of us on both sides of the battle line screaming at each other and hate hating on each other, why are not we having a reasonable conversation that both sides of this equation truly want what's best for humanity? And I believe at the heart of it, most people do. Now, there are, there are fringe people on both sides. Let's be honest, there are in every conversation. But most people could sit down and have a conversation about when life begins. And we may not agree on what the answer is, but if it comes, in the, if it comes at the foundation of we are agreeing to disagree, but I believe that your stance on this is based on when life begins. And, and, and that's not the way it's gone. But this, I want to be a little bit critical of my side of this argument, and here's where I think the legislature needs to do something, is that we defaulted back in a law that we have now. We defaulted back to a law that goes back to the territorial days of Arizona to 1864. As somebody that's pro-life, we have made, myself included, now I've done it in this capacity, not in an official capacity. And there are many of people that whether it's legislation or policy or whatever else have done it officially. I'm not doing it officially. Mine is just an opinion. But it's a very big opinion, obviously, because where I sit. But if we have said for years, you know, that medical technology is so much better now than when Roe was implemented, that the mother's lives, mother's lives are in danger far less often than they would have been decades ago. And the babies are being carried or being born prematurely and are able to be sustained at younger and younger ages because medical technology and the the ability to do surgery in the womb and all of the things we've been able to develop have made it so that life begins officially or whatever you want to call it. It's easier to keep those lives. Therefore, the abortion rules should be tightened up because life is easier to sustain now. If we are going to make that kind of an argument, and I have, that the medical technology in the 1950s, 60s, 70s is nothing like it is now, and therefore life is more easily sustained, so we should change our laws accordingly. If we're going to make that argument as a pro-life crowd, how do we then in good conscience say, but we're okay going back to a law that dates back to 1864? Because it has the verbiage in it that we like? Or is this now where you say, you know, we wanted our laws updated here in Arizona and across the country because of Roe in the 70s, and yet we're okay as pro-life people defaulting back to an 1864 law? And I'm not a lawyer. It's just one person's opinion that stands up and is, is again, unapologetically pro-life. I'll have the pro-life conversation with anyone in a reasonable way. I will state my claim. I'm not going to be offensive. I'm not going to yell and scream. What I'm going to say is this is how I feel about this topic. This is why I believe what I believe. And I'll acknowledge that there are some areas that I, I, I wrestle with myself. But that is, in, in, at its core, this conversation has been forever about when life begins. There are many people that believe that life begins, human life begins at conception. And when the baby's conceived at that moment, that child deserves constitutional protection inside the womb like outside of the womb. 
There are people on the other extreme that believe it's my body, my choice, and I should be able to terminate that pregnancy up until the moment of childbirth. Now, again, as rare as that is, there's a belief that that should be the woman's choice. It's her choice. But somewhere in the middle, when we talk about when a life begins, that's what this argument has always been about. And I just, I don't understand why we can't, as a society, take a deep breath and say, we have to be able to have a reasonable conversation about this because the situation isn't going away. I also warned my friends on my side of the aisle when Roe was defeated that be careful what you wish for because there will be many states that will go in the opposite direction of the way you want to. Now, Arizona may have pretty stringent and strict rules uh, and restrictions on abortions. But places like California won't. And this is what it opens the door for those states to do whatever they want, however they want. So if the laws are going to be that way, I just think that for people that are pro-life, whatever the law ends up being, it's it's on the shoulders of the pro-life people to say, then we have work to do. It may not be you're not forced to have an abortion. It's a choice. So then why aren't we talking to young people, uh, you know, a single mom or a young couple and helping them through the process to make sure that they know they have the resources they need to carry that child to term and either put it up for adoption or to keep that child and say to them, we will give you another option where we'll come alongside you. And, you know, that I just think there's work to be done. There's just a lot of work that you can do. And I'm anxious to see if people are going to do it that way or if this is going to continue to be one of those fights where we just hate on each other uh, because we disagree on a passionate issue. There's no doubt it's emotional. But at some point, you've got to step back and say, you know, I've got to be a little different on this one. Um, coming up in a moment, uh, we're going to talk about the DeMar Hamlin situation, the, the Bills player that was almost, uh, his life was almost taken on the football field. But I've got a little bit of a different perspective as I was watching this with my, my nephew um, over the weekend or on Monday night while I was on vacation. I'm going to talk a little bit about this and how fragile life is and the reminder that it is. That's coming up here in just a moment. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Happy New Year from the Mike Broomhead Show. Doing my best to keep this voice together. I apologize in advance for uh, what you're hearing because I just had a cold. I got it. I brought it back with me from Florida. I'm not contagious anymore. It's just kind of getting over it. So I apologize. Doing the best I can to get past it. Um, Damar Hamlin. Collapsed on the football field, and uh, it was a horrible scene to see. You're talking about a very healthy young man that went into cardiac arrest. Now, why that happened, we don't know yet. Um, was it a hit he took, or was it the right? So there was one expert that said it's the timing of the hit at just the right time when the heart is beating that that trauma to the heart can cause cardiac arrest, and it's how quickly you get treatment to figure out how well you are going to recover. And and um, we saw, and I think it was in uh, it wasn't wasn't World Cup, but it was in another major soccer tournament internationally where a player just dropped dead on the field, on the pitch, as they call it. And he was able to be revived and then returned to his team later on. Um, And so we've seen something like this happen. But the reason why these things become such a big story, I think, is because they, they illustrate the frailty of life. 
Um, if you know, I've seen the comparisons. What about the police chief that was killed in the line of duty? You're 100 percent right. Um, you know, and so for the NFL players that were on the field, devastated for what they saw. It brings to mind a lot of different things for me. Um, so when you hear people say you'll never understand what this camaraderie or what this brotherhood of the NFL is like, and um, I would say to you, and I'm not making a comparison. This is just about um, realizing that you're, everybody's in their own unique situation. When you, when I've gone out, when I started speaking out on my brother's behalf when he was killed, and I started telling his story, and I started traveling with families of fallen soldiers, mostly parents, but some of them with uh, were siblings like I was. And you start hearing the heroic story of how that troop whether it was a soldier or an airman or a marine or whatever it was, how, how they were killed and the, the heroism, you realize that it's not a unique story, that they all would do this for each other. And the other thing you realize, being invested in the veteran community as I have been forever, is that it's the same kind of brotherhood or sisterhood. It's the same kind of camaraderie as that when one of your own falls, you take it as personally as you would a family member, which is what I saw on the football field the other day. That's what it looked like to me. It, that's how it looked. That's how it appeared to me. Um, so the idea of should we play football, should we, all those other conversations are going to happen. You know, uh, here in this building, there was um, – most of you have heard the news. There has been a, a devastating loss here as someone that has worked uh, at this company for a very long time was killed in a crash recently. And, and there are many people in the building that are the mourning her loss that knew her much better than I did. But when you work with someone as long as you have your work family, and we all understand we spend almost as much time or maybe even more in some cases with the people we work with than we do with the people at home that we love. It's a different kind of love and a different kind of family, but it's still a family unit. And there is a huge sense of loss when one of those members is taken away, especially when it's done tragically, especially when it's done unexpectedly in what seems to be the prime of someone's life. So when I saw this DeMar Hamlin thing happen and I watched, um, you know, uh, I, I love Scott Van Pelt. I, I think that guy is brilliant over on ESPN. SVP to me, I think, is just the best thing that's happened to ESPN since Dan Patrick. I, I just think the guy is amazing. And um, watching him try to do his broadcast, which is usually really lighthearted and fun, and try to transition to talking and trying to make some rational uh, thought out of what had happened when they had very limited information. But in the end, it just keeps coming full circle for me that until you're in that situation, and I hope it doesn't ever happen to any one of you, where you get a phone call that changes your life because someone unexpectedly is taken from you. Then you realize what it's like to be in that situation, the shock that overcomes you and, and everything else that happens. But for everybody that's upset, and I don't know that there are that many of them, but for people out there that are saying, well, we're talking about this in such a big way. Why aren't we talking about this, too? Um, I just think because so many people watch the NFL that when something like that happens, it affects everybody. You know, um, when my brother was killed and, and then after that was when Pat Tillman was killed, I was asked once by a journalist, asked once if it bothered me that, you know, the whole country knew Pat Tillman's name and not my brother's. And, and it was somebody, I think, that was looking for a setup of a question. And I said, absolutely not. Uh, the Tillman family has suffered the exact same loss my family has suffered. And um, I anybody that brings attention and can bring some good from that, you know, some silver line 
standing out of that dark cloud like the Tillman Foundation has done. What they've been able to accomplish because of what Pat Tillman did on the football field to ASU and for the Arizona Cardinals and what they've done in the years that followed is what you're supposed to do. When you find yourself in that situation... When that happens to you, and that's what happened on Monday Night Football. Everybody's watching a football game. You're watching these young men compete. What looked like a fairly pedestrian hit, they didn't look like anything devastating. We've seen much harder hits end up in nothing. And then this poor young man collapses, and then you find out he's on the field getting CPR. You start seeing the fragility of life, how fragile life is. And uh, I just hope we don't ever lose that. I hope we remember that. We continue. I mean, this is my um, kind of my uh, optimistic view of life. But if we could hold on to that, if you could realize the person that you're hating on in your um, conversation where you're having an adversarial scream and match conversation and you realize if something were to happen to them, I'd feel horrible that in the end, our conversations about what we argue about are valid. But man, the importance of life when you see a young man hit the ground like he did and his life has changed forever and so are the lives of his teammates. I just think that's the focus for me. I think maybe that's where my sense of wanting things to be um, civil come from. I mean, I know what real loss is, as unfortunately too many of you do. And I just want to see us to be, I just want to see us better. And so that was the lesson I took from watching that young man hit the ground and now what's happened since. And I hope that um, he's going to be okay. I hope that he's able to walk out of that hospital and it ends well for his team and for his family. Uh, coming up just after 10 o'clock, naturalized citizens hit a 10 or I'm sorry, a 15 year high. Good news about the difference between immigration and the border. So we'll talk about both in a few moments. 